my passion for sound is uh, beyond boundaries of art. Like uh, I'm interested in physics of sound, which have maybe no real practical use in in my own artwork, and uh, that that same goes for my other like interests that uh, I don't consider these things as uh, tools to utilize for my artworks. They're just something which fascinates me as a person which is fascinated by the world and and science and everything. So basically I didn't want to describe myself just as an artist because that's not what I just do. For example, these days I, I don't even do that much art comparably to other things. Like I, I spend a lot of time in the forest working with uh, mushrooms, working with technology, and the real creative work is directed towards rather like technical problems or uh, observing. So there is not like a real like output you could present as an artistic output there. Maybe that's why I, I call myself enthusiast because it's kind of like a bigger, but on the other hand, uh, my mom told me that, that it's not a good term to use because then it looks like I'm an amateur, um, like enthusiast is somebody who's just like hobbyist level or something in her mind, but I, I don't really see it that way. I don't know what are the connotations in people's minds though. Jonas Grushka is a proud amateur, honoring the French origin of the term to love what you do. Curiosity and passion run through pretty much everything that Grushka engages in. In our conversation, ranging from his site-specific sound installations to his handcrafted microphones and audio tools, his recent interest in mycology, and his playful exploration of the electromagnetic spectrum, Jonas used the word fascination quite a lot, and for good reason. Curiosity and passion may indeed be the glue that holds together all the facets of his rather diverse artistic pursuits. The invisible thread that connects data sonification and oyster mushrooms. These interests and many more overlap in Loam, Grushka's record label, audio equipment manufacturer, sound laboratory and public space in Bratislava, which emerged and gradually mutated from a punk DIY ethos and is now a well-established platform for sound experimentation and beyond. We talked to Jonas about resonating spaces, resonating surfaces, tramways, self-taught electronic circuitry, field recordings, fermentation, mushrooms, and unusual microphones. There was different sorts of obsessions in my family. So, for example, my, my grandfather is a collector and he's a professor of uh, quantum computing. So he's obsessed with the future of computers, which is uh, super fascinating to me, especially because he was born like between uh, the wars and he grew up without an idea of a computer in his head and uh, now he's this uh, world expert on uh, quantum computing which are computers that doesn't don't really even exist yet in practical form 
So that uh, that huge jump is super inspiring. And uh, yeah, but there was no like a musical uh, trait there. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I studied classical guitar, which is like pretty common, uh, at least here in Slovakia, that uh, kids study some sort of instrument like a piano or flute or at least something like there were several several people in in my class at uh, at school which were studying some kind of instrument and but it usually doesn't really progress anywhere and uh but yeah I was interested in punk music and it it was pretty low entry uh, thing like you don't really have to play very well and uh, the whole scene is uh, super accepting and at the time I was also like becoming politically engaged like uh, I was a uh, you know, 14-year-old activist uh, spreading flyers, um, doing uh, Food Not Bombs, which was this initiative uh, where we were cooking uh, food uh, for homeless people uh, and, uh, like, giving it away for free in the center of the city, like, to bring out attention to, like, there are these hungry people in the world and so on. And uh, super naive stuff uh, but of course yeah i was 14 and uh, it was all together with the with the punk or hardcore punk uh, attitude like it was super politically charged uh, scene so there was all this um, anarchist anti-fascist vegan straight edge all sorts of uh, interest there and with that with uh, with the hardcore music i i was slowly more and more interested in uh, finding like more extreme music which would like uh, inspire me and like uh, go beyond certain boundaries I was used to and uh, then I discovered like harsh noise uh, stuff like the most extreme music I guess there is uh, in in terms of like uh, loudness and expression and it's super powerful stuff and then slowly i then i came back from the harsh noise towards more sophisticated ways of uh, experimental music so that was like the trajectory like just finding more extreme forms of how sound can approach you or how can it what what can it do actually with your perception and what with your emotions and so on
school at, at Institute of Sonology, there is also part of electronic education, very like rudimentary basics of how to make simple circuits, uh, amplifiers and so on. And uh, at the time it didn't really interest me so much, but when I moved to a residency to Poland, to Krakow, uh, it wasn't a residency, it was a student exchange program. Uh, I, I was living in an apartment without uh, internet connection and that was super inspiring, of course, because uh, I'm uh, addicted to, to internet. So I, I, I suddenly had all this free time on my hands and I was uh, starting to explore modular synthesizers and uh, how to build your own modular synthesizer. So uh, I started to buy components in the local electronic parts store and that ended up in building my own synths and like the classic uh, DIY noise machine stuff like you heard a thousand times before uh, nothing super particularly interesting but that gave me a little bit of uh, confidence in, in electronics and, uh, and then after I returned to Netherlands from Poland I uh, started to explore field recording and especially electromagnetic sounds. I think it was uh, in, after one particular concert by Chris Galareta and one other person which I forgot the name of, but they were both using some sort of electromagnetic sensors like telephone pickup coils or something like that. And Chris Galareta is a super interesting artist from uh, Peru. He was uh, living in Netherlands at the time and is like involved in a bunch of like activist communities and uh, just very interesting guy and uh, he actually inspired me to to research the electromagnetic fields I afterwards I invited him to Slovakia to perform as well on our events and we became friends and uh, so I was researching how to do my own electromagnetic uh, listening and uh, created this device for amplifying the electromagnetic waves from an old uh, cassette tape head and a, like amplifier circuit and uh, sold like 20 of those to my friends and people which were interested and that slowly developed into like more interest and the second version which was uh, funded through like Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign and that one was sold in maybe 100 units and then it was growing and growing and it became kind of like a living that that I was uh, suddenly making all these electromagnetic devices called electrosluch uh, it actually means electric listening in Slovak and yeah after that uh, I was more and more fascinated by by field recording and uh, Developing my own microphones was like a natural progression of this electromagnetic wave research because I wanted to record regular acoustic sounds as well. Good microphones were super expensive, so I did research how to make my own. And then again, friends of mine wanted some, uh, some too, and I was making more and more. And now we are uh, making like uh, more than thousand pairs a year or, or so. And it became like a company from that. So that's that's like a 
main part of my livelihood is running a company making uh, electromagnetic sensors and microphones and uh, recently also uh, geophones which are like uh, contact microphones for recording seismic activity but also any kind of contact uh, vibration sound. As a person involved with sound art and uh, experimental sound, I was uh, always fascinated by like super tiny sounds and like these little things you can record at home, which are not musical sounds, but can be quite interesting musically for me. And also with, with recording nature. So I was researching microphones, which are actually designed for like faint sounds rather than for music because of course, most microphones on the market are designed to capture either voice or a live instrument, and those are usually rather loud compared to sounds of nature or sounds of ambience. So I, I saw it as kind of a missing thing on the market, but as I said, like at the beginning, it wasn't never considered as a commercial project, but over time I saw that it's actually something that people really want. They want uh, sensitive microphones which wouldn't be too expensive and could be like uh, like you wouldn't worry too much about the microphone also. Like that was an important thing for me that when I was experimenting with field recording I wanted to experiment with the mic placement so I wanted to like put it in a hole in a bridge and I didn't know what's in that hole but I wanted to try how it sounds and I would be really worried to put like a thousand dollar microphone in there of course. In the field recording world it has been really revolutionary to have affordable recorders. And that wouldn't be possible without the, the big manufacturers. Like the democratization of the recordings and the field recording, it's, I think it's like a overall beneficial thing for the field recording world. Almost everyone can afford like a hundred euro recorder in most parts of the world. If like we have uh, customers from India, for example, which are buying our microphones and equipment or like really distant countries where you wouldn't imagine there is like a very lively scene, but the field has become really approachable thanks to, thanks to these big manufacturers. But of course, as a manufacturer, I also see this part of like, uh, what's the influence of making electronics in general in this world? Like uh, there are components which are using these materials mined in very bad conditions, for example, like tantalum capacitors, Tantalum is mined in Africa, or sometimes by child slaves. A uh, lot of electronics is uh, made in not so good con conditions. Uh, of course, th but it's like the general electronics uh, problem in the world. Like we are creating all these gadgets and devices, which uh, maybe are not that necessary and not essential. 
and uh, utilizing all these resources from the earth. So that's something I think about a lot because we are also yeah, electronics manufacturer. And even though we are trying to like uh, approach things as environmentally consciously as possible, it, it's not always easy because like uh, for, for, for example, you're receiving a batch of connectors and they're all packed individually in plastic. And we are talking about thousands of connectors. So you have these thousands of plastic uh, packages and there is no way to talk to the manufacturer to do it differently because we are just not like a, I guess, big enough player to, <laughs> to, to have a special deal to have things uh, maybe packed more environmentally consciously or things like that. And that's just like part of it, but um, yeah, there are impacts in all we do. And uh, I'm very aware of it. Actually, I was super interested in uh, this project called Fairphone which was a company from Netherlands, which is a company from Netherlands, which is trying to produce uh, smartphones in an environmentally conscious way. And they're like visiting the parts where they're sourcing the raw materials to make the components. And they're uh, sourcing fair trade gold, which I didn't even know is a thing that exists in the world, but there is a fair trade gold. And uh, gold is used in the manufacturing process of uh, a lot of circuit boards. There are all these like things I'm, I'm, I'm aware of and I'm trying to think about and how to approach this in a better way. And uh, so uh, I'm trying to design products uh, which are open source and which are repairable. So in that way, I guess that could help with the issue of uh, overproduction but yeah i'm still like uh unsure like if the if the benefits of what i'm doing are really like uh worth the exchange of the the problems they they produce in the world so, like uh, it's it's still like open question for me and uh actually it brings up an interesting thing that uh, i had a discussion with one of our community members it was a girl i think living in germany and uh, she was complaining because uh, we are we are making instruments usually in quite low quantities like maybe 100 200 uh, instruments at a time and uh, in some instruments are so like high demand that they sell out in like three minutes like we did a batch of these geophones and uh, I opened up the, the orders and in three minutes 180 geophones were gone and uh, this girl approached me that uh, she thinks that actually the way we do things that we have these limited amounts is uh, that there is something wrong about having like a low manufacturer making low amount of microphones because not everyone can like buy them. And it was like really strange argument and I wonder, still wonder if there was, there was something there because it is true. Like, uh, if you are not available at the time we are doing the pre-order, even if it's available, uh, even if I announce it in time, you are not able to buy it, but I didn't really find the, the better way how to deal with this demand we have. And that's a problem of 
all small manufacturers, I guess, which make like uh, this sort of products that there is a how to problem how to satisfy every every part of the community. In a sense. At the moment, I'm uh, focusing more on uh, the mycology and living organisms in general. Uh, it, I, I feel like it possibly will become part of my artistic practice, but it, I don't think it's there yet. It's just in a, in a research phase. But uh, I started to spend more and more time in the forest. Like uh, these, these days I go several times a week to the forest for a couple of hours, do a bit of uh, meditation, but also just like observing what's going on. And uh, I'm working on a small brochure for a local, it's called City Forests of Bratislava, it's organization managing some parts of forests around the city. And we are uh, working on a small book about mushrooms in those forests to uh, talk about the diversity of organisms living in these places, because it's actually something you can uh, visit very easily. It's uh, like uh, from my house, it's half an hour to get there. And it's like forest full of different sorts of organisms, including like rare uh, protected mushrooms and things like that. So uh, I spent a lot of time in forests these days. So that's, I guess, what's changed. and uh, regarding the artistic practice, I'm uh, already starting to think about what's going to happen after, but it's all very unclear. I mean, I have uh, I have some uh, ideas of how I want to do more live performances and uh, what to do, but it's still like in a in a research phase. Like uh, there is one project coming up where I'm planning to use this uh, metallic fence which is uh, next to house where I live in. It's kind of separating this uh, empty parcel where there is uh, where there used to be a house 20 years ago, but now it's just a complete wilderness. There's a lot of plants living there and uh, the fence is separating the, the sidewalk and this wilderness. And uh, I'm planning to use the whole fence as a, as a sort of a speaker, as a multi-channel speaker and uh, it will be presented in a way that I'm not actually visible there. I'm behind the fence and the fence is uh, speaking to the people either with sounds themselves or with some musical things happening. Uh, it's, it's still not super clear, but I had this idea for a long time and 
Uh, I'm getting back more to the like local small artistic practices so maybe that will be a direction like less traveling and doing uh, like community focused work around here yeah people know me as this sound person and uh, they're trying to guess like what's my angle with the mushrooms like how are you going to sonify these mushrooms and they are sending me links to these various projects where people are attaching probes to the mushroom or like sensing their electric uh, field and things like that and uh, to be honest I, 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 I still don't know I, I, I just sense that there will be something like that but maybe it won't be even uh, a sonic practice because I, I don't consider myself limited to that medium. Of course, I, I'm super interested in it, but I don't want to like forcefully uh, push it in that direction if, if it doesn't work. So at the moment, I'm just like freely exploring everything about mushrooms. So over the last year, I started uh, growing mushrooms, which uh, resulted in my interest in deeper understanding of how these organisms actually reproduce and how can I as a person without any education actually work with them and uh, for example cultivate them even on a at more advanced level so uh, for example I learned how to uh, clone wild mushrooms which is a super interesting thing basically similar to taking a like a cutting of a of a tree or a plant in the forest and bringing it at home and growing it at home but it's slightly more uh, difficult because mushrooms are uh, basically very uh, in a constant fight with bacteria and other mushrooms and molds so when you work with them you have to maintain a super sterile environment and uh, the cloning process involves like uh, a lot of uh, disinfection of all surfaces and uh, wearing gloves and using uh, flame to sterilize oil tools and then there is still a rather low success rate so but I, I learned how to do that and uh, I managed to clone a wild oyster mushroom from this city forest so I brought a piece to my my small DIY lab uh, and I cloned it on a petri dish and then from the petri dish I created the spawn and from the spawn I was able to grow the mushroom again uh, in my own environment and uh, it's super fascinating to me that it is uh, the still same organism as the one in the forest continuously living through this whole process and uh, I'm witnessing it growing again and uh, uh, so things like these are super inspiring to me and uh, I, I sense they have a, a lot of artistic potential which can be somehow uh, incorporated to what I want to do in the world but uh, at the moment I'm just uh, sharing the knowledge I'm organizing uh, actually a mushroom festival uh, it will be second time this year 
So we had the first year, we had the, yeah, last year we had the first iteration where we, I called it mycophile gathering. And uh, we had around uh, 30 people in total, which were interested and uh, we did um, field trip and we did microscopy, we did myco uh, illustrations. We had all sorts of lectures uh, and uh, movie screening. So at the moment I'm just like spreading the knowledge and uh, uh, surrounding myself with uh, other mycophiles or people which are actual mycologists from the university and from a local natural museum. And, and we'll see where it goes, but as I said, I don't really wanna like force it into the into the sound if it if it doesn't feel right. So at the moment, it it uh, is still disconnected from my other artistic practices. my first mushrooms then I had questions uh, which needed to be answered and I, I wanted to know more about these organisms and that that's that's basically where I started to study and discovered that actually they are way more interesting than people usually think like in Slovakia and Czech Republic it is very common to be a mushroom forager I think seven out of ten people in Czech Republic go mushroom foraging at least once a year so it's like a national thing that you you just do, and uh, so I, I was as well like uh, going to the forest in the autumn and and harvesting couple of types of edible mushrooms, sometimes uh, cooking them in the forest as well. And but that was it. I saw this as this yeah organisms that you can uh, uh, utilize as food which were kind of fascinating because uh, there is like a huge variety in them and uh, uh, I don't eat uh, meat or fish or like uh, sea uh, animals. So I was kind of missing a variety in tastes and textures in uh, beyond vegetables. Like there was this uh, sense of like uh, the the people which that that uh, or even eat cheese they have this great variety of tastes they can approach very easily and uh, since i was uh, vegan at the time i was looking for something similar that and mushrooms perfectly fit that role that there is a huge variety they're like kind of specialist um, or a gourmet kind of thing yeah so so i i started to read more about it. I le learned about uh, mycorrhizal relations with the trees, which is thing that has been hugely popularized recently. That, uh, as you probably know, that uh, many of the edible mushrooms which we harvest form uh, symbiotic relationships with the trees in the forest, and they actually have... the, the, the relationship is quite complex, that uh, mushrooms are harvesting uh, certain types of minerals 
and water from the soil and they're delivering uh, it to the trees in exchange for sugar and uh, basically for in exchange for carbon that is super fascinating to me that there's like this underground network of uh, organisms communicating not only between each other but between different species and uh, the trees can actually help each other through the fungal networks so i was reading and more and more about this and then i learned also about the microremediation which is a process where you use mushrooms to recover sites which have been polluted by certain chemicals or by oil like there is a research about oil spills being treated with oyster mushrooms which can kind of uh, digest the 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 hydrocarbon uh, chains into different forms and can kind of recover the environment and uh, so all these things are yeah super interesting and actually were way more interesting than what i was dealing with at the time uh, in sound it was like a completely new world to me so i i became obsessed basically i I felt this uh, urge that uh, I, I I cannot read fast enough. That 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 uh, sometimes happen when I find a new obsession that I'm reading something and I'm feeling like the the information is delivered too slowly to my brain and I need it. I need uh, and I want to absorb it all immediately. And then I then I made like a small laboratory in Lom in the basement where I, uh, with the help of some friends, made uh, this device called Laminar Flow, Laminar, Laminar Flow uh, Ventilator, which, can, uh, which is really essential for mycological work, which produce kind of a sterile environment because it blows clean air on you, towards you. So you are kind of all the, all the bacteria and dust in the air, which can contaminate your work, is blown away. I, I got a microscope and I just completely dived into the subject and uh, it's it's one of those uh, like obsessions I have <laughs> now.
last year I started working also with algae, uh, especially with uh, chlorella and spirulina, which you maybe know as uh, this health food products, but they are actually much more than that. I think spirulina was grown uh, thousands of years ago. There's a historical evidence that it was grown by uh, different cultures in the past and uh, it's this very small uh, single cell algae which looks kind of like a spiral but you can only see it with a microscope the, the spiral form so it kind of looks like green water basically when you grow it the, the water becomes more and more densely green and uh, it is this one of these superfoods basically it has uh, proteins it has fats it has minerals, it has vitamins, and uh, apparently you can uh, even survive on eating just spirulina for quite a long time because in a dried form it has like a good balance of proteins and, and fats and uh, carbs. So it can really be used as a food replacement in a sense. So I was experimenting with growing that. Since I had uh, the laboratory equipment, I managed to find live spirulina because most of the time what you buy in the stores is already dried and dead plant matter. And what I was interested in was the live culture. So uh, I visited a local university and got some knowledge there. And then I ordered the live cultures from the internet and start growing that. Uh, unfortunately, I, uh, there was just too much on my plate, so I didn't have time to, to push it further because what it would really need is to create like a proper bioreactor to grow it in uh, bigger amounts. I was just growing it experimentally in, in sl small amounts, but to actually use it as a food, you would have to have like a big, big, uh, yeah, as I said, bioreactor, which is a device with controlled temperature. Uh, oxygen uh, aeration and uh, CO2 content uh, because algae actually thrive on CO2 uh, compared to us they really need CO2 to live and uh, uh, because of that they're also super interesting that not only it's this uh, magical superfood but they can uh, harvest CO2 from the environment super efficiently uh, way more efficiently than trees and they can also be grown much more easily than trees. And there are some, uh, also some, there's some discussion about uh, climate change in relation with that, that uh, that's, that's what I heard somewhere that people are thinking of, like how to actually fertilize the algae in uh, certain parts of the oceans to uh, utilize them as these CO2 harvesters and produce oxygen, which is the perfect plant that we need right now and so that that is part of the biome but actually I would need uh, like one more person just to handle the algae because uh, I just simply didn't had uh, the, the enough time to take care of my mushroom cultures the the company the label and uh, my my own artworks and algae as well so it was just too much too much on my plate and the uh, third part of biome is uh, experimentation with uh, like fermentation, nat natural fermentation, where uh, I uh, was making my own uh, fermented products of different sorts, which is also kind of a traditional thing here in Slovakia that people are fermenting 
cucumbers or making all sorts of like lemonades, fermented drinks, uh, non-alcoholic uh, fermented stuff as well, not, not, not just wine or beer, but utilizing microorganisms in all sorts of uh, ways of preservation of food, basically. So allying with this microbiome to, to uh, also pre-digest cert certain types of food. Like uh, I was experimenting with making tempeh, which is this Indonesian uh, traditional food made from soybeans and a particular malt called Rhizoporus oligosporus, I think. And basically you uh, inoculate uh, soybeans uh, with, with this mold and it grows over them and uh, it pre-digests the parts of the lentils or the or, or whatever you give it and uh, it's more easily digestible for humans afterwards so again that's like uh, utilizing the the world of microorganisms for for our benefit uh, so all these parts are kind of interconnected between each other and uh, like in some parts I'm trying to avoid molds in other parts I'm trying to promote um, bacterial growth it's like all different balances there I actually hear this uh, a lot that people kind of can tell that something is my style or something like that but uh, to be honest, I, I never really perceive it personally that I would have like a particular uh, approach. I mean, of course, there are similarities with uh, certain works, especially works which are in, uh, as a part of a series. Um, as you mentioned, there are there is a series of works which uh, utilizes resonances of spaces, of materials, where I create site-specific works for uh, objects and they always use like very similar principles that I'm basically using uh, uh, exciters to excite unusual objects or spaces with uh, very carefully tuned frequencies and uh, that way I'm able to kind of use very little power input to get very like grandiose output from the system that is something which fascinated me within the series but uh, to be honest i don't see the relation with this kind of work and for example my field recording practice like i i see them as two disconnected uh, areas although probably there are there is a shared uh, aesthetic decision making that i i have a tendency towards certain type of uh, sonics and timbers and this sort of thing. So I guess the universal approach is a bit difficult for me to define, but uh, I guess there is always uh, some DIY, like that's almost in everything I do, that there is some custom work that needs to be done for the project to work. And also because I enjoy this part of the creative process to be able to shape the artwork in, in many ways, like um, I'm not very confident in taking like um, ready-made products and using them with, with my art because they are usually not uh, suitable or I'm not sure if I can, I, I can trust their performance. So uh, if I build it myself, I know who to blame when it doesn't work. 
in that sense. So the DIY is, I guess, the, the one shared thing in all of this. But uh, for other things, I, I don't know if something else comes to mind, like uh, just appreciation for like very minimalistic sounds, I guess, like minimalistic approach with uh, like very tiny inputs, which create interesting results, like basic algorithms, which create complex uh, compositions or something like that. that. That could be also like visible in some works I do. Like, uh, I mean, recently I've been um, fascinating with uh, polymetry, uh, like the concepts of having multiple tempos or like BPMs in, uh, in music where uh, there are rhythms which start at one point possibly together and then they drift apart in their own ways and if you listen carefully you can still hear each separate rhythm but uh, together it uh, it's kind of surprising result because the, the these unexpected combinations of tones and sounds can occur over time which I cannot even like easily predict in my head but there is it's like a compositional tool for me and it's a it's a thing I think we all experience actually in our daily lives like there is a let's say uh, when you watch cars on a crossroad they have these blinkers on the side and they start start blinking and none of them are in sync together so they have like their own tempos but together they create these light patterns which are I mean they are predictable but not predictable in a sense that we know what to expect and it, it, it is kind of mesmerizing to me to have this kind of very very basic principle creating something more complex out of it it's not really a chaotic system in any sense but it's enough for me <laughs> Like another really good example of this sort of thing is uh, when I use the the exciters. Like, um, let's say for example, I was doing a work in a it was a former washing machine room or like a laundry room in a mental institution in uh, Prague, and they used to have this. Uh, huge building in the center of the area where where they had washing machines and it's quite large space with a huge ventilation system and I was mounting these exciters on the ventilation system and since there was a huge reverb it was very like a generous space in in terms of producing sound and uh, what I was doing was basically I measured the resonances of the system and then fine-tunes them to to excite it. And what happens there is that I, I'm using, uh, let's say, sine waves or triangle waves or very basic oscillators, like the, the most basic you can get. And uh, when you put them through an unpredictable system like that, which is composed of a, like a metallic structure, these frequencies excite all kinds of sounds. Uh, like imagine uh, hitting a metal plate. There is a 
complexity in that you're you're hitting it with a hammer which is a single impulse which excites the system of the plate in a super interesting way so that that's an example of a simple input which produces complex output and the same thing is with the with the exciters you are pushing a simple wave an oscillation through the system but all these fragments of it which are which would be super difficult to calculate if you would want to like do the math on how it's going to behave so um that's I, I guess the complexity i'm talking about that uh there is this uh beautiful way of exciting objects which you can do with simple and basic means also that uh, it's important to mention that these sine waves I push through the objects are rather quiet uh, because if they are fine-tuned for the system, the system will actually like them and amplify them in a sense. It's a very similar thing when you're on a, on a swing, for example, and you find this particular rhythm which excites the swing in a way that it, uh, it kind of stabilizes and moves you almost freely that you don't have to put so much energy into it it's, it's the same principle you're kind of finding the sweet spot for for the whole situation
I guess the the link is more in a sense that uh, like changing contexts basically that uh, the the context of a ventilation system is not usually as a speaker and the context of electromagnetic field is not something to listen to so just transforming uh, electromagnetic waves into audible sound I guess is recontextualizing the whole world around us like this invisible energy dimension so it's not just about the energy I would say it's more about transforming certain types of energy to to sound and uh, to different sort of experience because uh, also what I found fascinating with working with these exciters is that I got really bored of a concept of a speaker at the at the sound art exhibitions that speaker is such a defining and a very specific concrete object that already speaks a lot by its presence like when you enter a room with a speaker there is a certain expectation there is a, all the memories you had with installations where speakers were used there is all this baggage uh, connected to the to the object itself and it's of course it's the most common thing you will see on sound art exhibitions is like speakers hanging somewhere or placed somewhere or just like very very much present in the artwork and i didn't really appreciate the the baggage it had for me so uh, i i was trying to escape this uh, and this by by repurposing objects to to act as speakers which are actually very bad speakers if you see it from the view of a reproduction like it's a terrible speaker because it doesn't reproduce what you put inside it's it's doesn't sound good in any like high fine terms but uh, actually it's like a a processor or like effect for which you when you find the composition or when you compose for it it creates completely different experience both like sonically but very importantly also like uh, from the experience of a, of a person listening to it in in the space that there is this kind of mysterious thing about it <laughs> Eastern Europe it is very common to have these horn speakers in villages uh, that there is this uh, PA system around the village which serves uh, for announcements about like local football match or for example there is a van coming to the to the village which is selling fresh uh, meat or like local events they are informing and um, Usually uh, the the announcements start with some music, like to just notify people that there is gonna be announcement. They play like a song, and uh, 
it's really beautiful because it has this uh, lo-fi quality. The, the the horns were originally designed to transmit uh, human voice, so they are the sound is shaped in a sense that it's it works well for transferring that, but not really anything else. And uh, it has deep uh, nostalgic connections for basically anyone who spent at least one summer at a, at a village somewhere. So there is that, there is this context of the horn speaker, but I uh, the second thing I was really fascinated with was uh, watching wedding bands and uh, different kinds of bands from uh, Southeast Asia where they use these horn speakers as a PA as well. So they, they build this sort of totem from speakers uh, where there is a subwoofer and uh, there is some effects and uh, amplifiers and then on top of it there are these horn speakers uh, arranged in a way that they point in different directions so they and, and all this assembly is on on wheels so they can kind of like bring it to the wedding and they have this portable PA which is not directional as a common PA that there is a stage and people are sitting in front of stage, but this is rather something you can put in the middle of a group of people, and the musicians can be around and move freely. And uh, it sounded beautiful. When I heard it there also, it kind of reminded me of all these memories I had, and uh, there's not a hierarchy of a stage and an audience, but rather like a central point, and uh, people around uh, can get like the equal experience, because uh, of course, when there is a the, the stage arrangement, there is a better spots and worse spots as you go in the distance. And uh, here, people sitting around in a circle have kind of a better way of listening. Of course, there are limits too. So I found out how to get these horn speakers. They are not sold in regular speaker stores. They are sold in stores which sell to villages, to train stations which actually sell to where it's actually used in in, in more like a, a functional way rather than a musical way. And uh, I modified them so you can use them with a regular amplifier because they are traditionally designed to be used with this um, 100 volt system, which is a system designed where when you want to output one sound for many speakers and you don't know how many speakers will it be then you can uh, there is this system which you can use and chain these speakers i'm not saying indefinitely but chain a lot of speakers together and uh, not lose the the power output of of the system so i modified them and uh, found a way how to mount them uh, and uh, designed a little device which will also allow me to rotate them in space uh, which will give it extra acoustic possibilities um, in uh, similar to these Leslie amplifiers which were used uh, with the Hammonds where they use this they have this signature vibrato effect and uh, each speaker has its own input so I have four channels of audio which can rotate and that gives me plenty of possibilities with uh, different psychoacoustic acoustic effects in the space and uh, that's basically it I mean there are also other works I did with horn speakers which were sound artworks 
like uh, I utilized this horn speaker system at the train station here in Slovakia to play some sounds. I, I managed to kind of uh, hook into the, the system at the train station with my own input and uh, do that there. So that, that was also like uh, interesting experience to, to be able to work with this sort of arrangement. I'm more interested in that work of redefining the context of the sound there and the energy there. Like the trolleybus work I did is uh, about transforming the energy of the electromagnetics of the trolleybus to the audible spectrum for the people in the bus. But I'm not particularly interested in like uh, creating uh, controversy or like uh, bringing out this uh, violent reaction in a sense like uh, I really just wanted to like uh, show people like this is what's happening here in this dimension and I, I think it's kind of interesting to hear and I think that that's about it like there is no like uh, deeper thing behind that work and uh, actually in that trolleybus most of the passengers were people interested in the sounds and uh, the, like most of the people there were the audience which were mostly silent and uh, they were listening so <laughs> there's definitely a lot of humor i put in there but a uh, surprising amount of people don't pick on it and uh, they take it all seriously and uh, it makes me kind of sad sometimes that uh, it is perceived that way uh, because for me like the humor in there is obvious like the, the, the things you mentioned are obviously kind of uh, sonic jokes in a sense but they're still interesting sonically that that's the thing like I don't wanna do just the humor in there I, I, I just want to share the experience of listening something together like there is uh, this childlike look, this is kind of interesting to hear and let's listen to it together and uh, it doesn't really need to be like heavy in any sense, like I did more heavy works but in general I would say they're more on the light side, uh, they, they should be not exactly cheerful but uh, meant in a more positive or inspiring way.
I would definitely want to continue, for example, with this uh, approach of uh, hiding a microphone in something and then leaving it at a place and letting it be slowly or quickly uncovered by certain sort of animal or by certain sort of process. I've been trying to record uh, this uh, sensation where you, as you would lay under a train, there is this uh, Czech movie from the 90s where there is a one protagonist which has a hobby of uh, laying on the train tracks in a non-lethal way and uh, spitting on one particular number on the on the I'm not sure how, how it's called like the the machine at front of the train like it has a one number at the bottom and he has a hobby of like laying on a track waiting for the for the train to come and spitting on one particular number and uh i don't know i i, I guess it's kind of resonating for with me like the the danger connected to the situation i figured like I, how it would be to lay under a train and uh so I, i've been mounting microphones under the train tracks and uh in a way which resembles laying there so there's like uh, two microphones spaced apart and uh, luckily there are places around where you can do that without uh, looking like a terrorist trying to create a train crash so I, I was able to sneak in the microphones under the tracks because over the tracks obviously they would be uh, cut off and uh, uh, recording that but uh, the problem is that um, what I want to have in the recordings is the train coming, like from a distance, because it's kind of important to have this uh, introduction of the sound, but also the, 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 the main part where the, the train is actually above the mics. And uh, the problem is that the, these two sounds are so vastly uh, different in their loudness that uh, it's difficult to set the recorder and choose the right microphones for this task because you want to record both the very faint distant sound but also for the whole setup to uh, survive the, the loudness of actual train above your head so like just just the dynamic range of that whole experience is uh, a bit too hard but I, I do have some recordings already and it's, uh, it's quite neat and I feel like it should be maybe used somewhere in the future so that's maybe something similar yeah there is the definitely uh, the, the collecting thing or the hunting thing is a part of field recording and I actually like no field recordists which are just obsessed with collecting sounds and not just their own sounds but they create these huge sound libraries which they then use in their work and uh, and uh, of course then there is the the film industry which is like the, the sound people there are exactly that they just want to have as many sounds as possible let's say there is a sound of a door closing and they want to have that sound in like a thousand different ways because there is this like very specific sound they are looking for and that's what they need and uh, Sometimes I just record sound because it's 
beautiful thing I need to capture and uh, there is no further plan for that except that I will listen to it again maybe in the future and maybe it will find its place in my work but uh, a lot of sounds just don't exist as on their own in the in the database and that is completely fine and uh, because I enjoyed the whole process of recording it and storing it and uh, processing it yeah it's like a Actually, I have a grandfather, which is a very obsessive collector of uh, these nativity scenes. Like, uh, he has a collection of hundreds of nativity scenes from all around the world, like, wherever Christian uh, religion uh, came in, <laughs> even like uh, very distant communities around the earth, there is when they are Christians, they are making these nativity scenes in their own style, and he has a collection. And, uh, so maybe there is something there also, like uh, this uh, collectionist thing. A person was asking if they can use our electrosluch device for recording paranormal activity and uh, it comes up actually once in a while that there are these uh, ghost hunters it's like a community of people which go to like abandoned churches or abandoned buildings and they have all kinds of sensors including electromagnetic sensors or very sensitive microphones or radios and they set them up around the space and they listen to the space and are trying to like uh, catch something uh, happening in the space and it's it's actually quite entertaining to to watch like you can like if you uh, look it up on on youtube uh, you will find like hundreds of videos like that that, that uh, people are like looking for ghosts somewhere and they have this uh, weird sounds mixed in there it's a, it's a, sort of a field recording practice if you if you look at it and they're all very attentive listeners which is also something i appreciate i definitely understand why there is something mystical about listening to electromagnetic fields because it's something very physical which is here with us constantly yet unperceivable uh, by our senses so it has like this connotation of uh, like the different realm uh, like a parallel realm existing within uh, the world and uh, what's fascinating is that uh, our ears are very uh, good information processors in the sense that uh, when you think of when you think about it uh, what happens that our ears are basically receiving two waves one wave per ear there is like a floating uh, kind of a pressure uh, modulation happening which has just one particular value in time so when when you, when you when you look at the eardrum there is like just at point of time it's just bent one way or the other in certain amount and that's it but from this modulation we are actually able to gather so much information like uh, this wave can be deconstructed into multiple sounds like 
for the moment at the moment I hear a ventilator of uh, my computer I hear a little bit of the fridge in the background I hear all these sounds which all together come as just one way but my brain and the whole apparatus is able to take it apart and uh, using various methods analyze what's happening and uh, together with the other ear they are able to localize the sounds just based on the, the time difference the sounds arrive to, to the different ears and uh, this is a very interesting device for analyzing uh, data so like the whole field of sonification uh, I'm not uh, when I'm not talking about the artistic sonification but real like sonification where you take uh, data and you transfer it into a sound for making them more accessible to our like cognition uh, it has a lot of potential because with our eyes there is only limited speed uh, the the ear has completely uh, different way of uh, uh, doing that and that's why that's why actually it can be super useful for analyzing things and where I'm going with this is that uh, uh, when we are studying electromagnetic fields let's say looking at the, at the wave on the oscilloscope uh, is nowhere near the experience we get from having uh, uh, the electromagnetic fields audible because we can really uh, using these methods as I described uh, find patterns in there find uh, peculiarities like find different uh, s small uh, things which are happening which would not be possible with our eyesight uh, eyesight uh, so uh, the the combination of our sense of hearing and and the whole apparatus uh, with the with a new area like that like a uh, I don't think the electromagnetism is a completely like uh, understood area, especially in like on the practical level of our, our daily lives. It's not completely understood in that sense that we are aware of everything and understanding of everything. Uh, so I, I see a potential there uh, in exploring the, the paranormal and turning it into, let's say, more normal or understandable. The electromagnetic smog is a very interesting topic. Uh, ever since I started to work with electromagnetic fields, it uh, always comes up. It's uh, exactly this kind of thing I was mentioning before, that it's an area we don't really know m that much about, uh, seems like. Uh, like there is, um, There are these people which claim to have this electro-hypersensitivity, as far as I know, officially, this is not uh, like a diagnosis which would be related to actual perceiving of the field, but rather psychosomatic issue. That uh, this person developed certain sense of looking around their environment and looking for potential sources of electromagnetic fields and directly 
connected them with something uh, harmful and as a result they actually perceive pain, headaches, they have all these uh, symptoms as they would be harmed by the field but uh, seemingly it is uh, due to the just their paranoia or something something like that uh, saying that there are also studies uh, which are not the most popular ones or the uh, like the most known ones which show certain amount of electromagnetic sensitivity at small number of people at particular frequencies and um, it uh, makes you wonder like if the if there is a really like good uh, and rigid conclusion about this whole subject on our website uh, of LOM I started collecting different articles and movies on this topic there have been uh, several documentaries actually talking about this uh, and one particularly good one is featuring Christina Kubisch which is the basically the queen of electromagnetic art uh, she's, she has been doing it I think from the 80s or maybe even 70s uh, we are actually lucky to host her at LOM last year and uh, uh, she's talking about her experience with electromagnetic fields and there are also electro hypersensitive uh, people there talking about their lives and how it affects them I don't have like a clear opinion about that yet because uh, of course I completely trust scientific research uh, but my question is if, if there has been enough research done and, um, and then there are also things that uh, kind of suggest that there might be some electromagnetic sensitivity in certain uh, types of people in cases like uh, there are for example uh, native people living around the world where there has been uh, research about the fact that they can orient in space without compass and they can like tell where the north is and that suggests they perceive the magnetic field of the earth and from that you can extrapolate to uh, being sensitive to a magnetic field in general that would be my assumption there like uh, birds have uh, organs which are able to like also sense the magnetic field of the earth and that is what they use to navigate when they are like moving through the world and uh, so there are examples of animals in uh, around us which also have this kind of sensitivity so it wouldn't be like that surprising that there is a certain amount of sensitivity in humans there as well like uh, it might be something that we just don't train enough like generally we don't focus on that kind of sensation or uh, it develops maybe in certain amount of people these are of course all speculations based on something I read somewhere it's like I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not uh, a scientist in any sense I, I just collect uh, the studies I find both proving and disproving these sort of sensitivities and 
I, I let the people decide if what they want to believe but it's definitely something worth exploring and I kind of also feel a uh, certain amount of guilt for uh, creating a device which allows one to explore these fields better because if this sort of device gets in hands of a person which already has a this sort of uh, psychosomatic paranoia starting up and they will hear what is happening around us I think that will just completely trigger their condition uh, because you will realize that this uh, smog is everywhere like you turn on electroslug and you, you will hear so many sounds in your apartment that uh, you will immediately start wondering if they are harmful and so on and so on it's like if you have this kind of predisposition so there is sort of a burden coming with revealing this uh, this dimension as well This is something like a lot of these electro-sensitive people don't realize that uh, it is safer usually to be closer to the to the GSM or uh, the, the mobile station because the, the cell phones around you are using way less power to transmit stuff. It's also interesting to do that in a train because train is basically like a metallic shield around the people in there it's it's i think it's grounded through the through the tracks so it's like a almost like a faraday cage and uh when you're when you're making a call from from the train it also needs to use like a lot of power to get out and all these sounds are kind of collected at the wall of the train it seems like like when i was listening to that you could hear it at the like at the near the train walls you could hear the cell phone signals the the loudest in a sense like they're, they're almost like trying to escape from the <laughs> but it's also like uh, I, I really am not sure how it is possible that we hear these cell phone sounds with uh, my devices because uh, the cell phones operate at gigahertz range uh, and uh, the electroslug is doing one-to-one -one, uh, conversion so like uh, 20 hertz in the electromagnetic field it's transferred to 20 hertz in the audio field, so the gigahertz range should be completely out of the question if we do the one-to-one -one conversion, because it's just way past uh, anything we could perceive. But somehow, some of it is demodulated in, in, into audible range, and uh, I, I, I still don't know how exactly that works. There are two things. So one is the capturing sounds, which is for me, it can have either two purposes. One is the, the capturing sounds for the documentary kind of things, like I'm documenting certain events in space. 
And uh, in that sense, I, I feel obliged to be objective as possible. Of course, it's not completely possible because there are subjective decisions about the microphone placement and various other uh, variables which I need to decide. And uh, then there is the, the aspect of creating work in these very imperfect spaces. And uh, the thing with that is that uh, it's not like I have a necessary a preference for bad sounding spaces or like a very echoey spaces. But I feel like the, the sonic work always needs to reflect the context where it's placed. So I think the worst thing you can do is uh, create a sound art somewhere without reflecting the acoustic conditions of that space. It's absolutely mind-boggling to me, yet it very much happens a lot around me and I saw it on many exhibitions that the sound piece just wasn't properly placed or properly like matched with uh, the environment. And uh, it also happened to me from a side of a, like a curator approached me to present my uh, sound art somewhere and uh, then I realized it will be placed in a room with uh, some video playing which has also sound so this was just like complete misunderstanding of what I'm trying to achieve and uh, a lot of the projects I did in these unperfect spaces were actually designed in a way that since I'm here and I want to do this there I want to actually reflect the reality of the space I want to be honest with uh, its faults and flaws and uh, uh, the the site specificity is just uh, crucial in that point because there is no way I can compose something at home in my computer and play it back somewhere and uh, it will sound the same on the other hand I wouldn't mind presenting my work somewhere uh, where it is like acoustically perfect. Let's say I would love to do a sound installation, for example, in an anechoic chamber, like in a space where you have no reflections, no sounds from the outside world. Uh, I have been uh, lucky enough to visit several of these anechoic chambers and uh, it's a very, very interesting experience and uh, it's basically designed for a sound art because you have like a is the equivalent of the white wall for a visual artist you have this pristine space where you can create something without the the pollution so there is that that it's not necessarily the preference for, for the messiness of the real world, but it's just that the world is already messy most of the time. And I feel like the, the art needs, needs to reflect it. And um, when it comes to processing sounds in my work, it's uh, just uh, playing with the, with the timbers. Like, uh, again, uh, I'm uh, often captivated by the idea that uh, our perception uh, is like maybe more or less shared to, together like we share the same um, amount of perception 
uh, when it comes to time, for example, or pitch, things like that. Uh, but uh, different organisms perceive these things completely differently, and uh, I like to imagine like how it would be to uh, listen to bad sounds if we would be able to hear them. So how it would be not in a sense that I'm transforming bad sounds to audible range, but rather how it would be if I could hear them. So that's uh, one of my uh, tracks on one album is this sort of imagination of uh, different sorts of perception of the world like uh, altering uh, our senses in a sense the speculative works i do are uh, not really based on like a science, like a strict science. I mean, I've, of course I have like a slight understanding of uh, the sound worlds of different animals and uh, I, I have some books on the topic of insect communication, for example. So it, it just got me thinking about like the anthropocentric views we always have about our not just intelligence, but also our perception of the world as this universal approach, which we don't realize is just like very, maybe narrow in some sense. During my early 20s, uh, I was experimenting with uh, psychedelics and uh, that was, uh, that's not like a very uncommon experience, I think, that uh, people are just uh, suddenly experiencing uh, changes in their perception of time, size, sound, all these senses are suddenly like uh, starting to lose their uh, original sense and uh, that was like a maybe a starting point there that uh, that I realized that our vision, our hearing is not as universal as I was used to and there are these other modes of perception and uh, it was uh, uh, one particular experience with the uh, audio hallucinogenic drug called uh, DIPT which is a, a compound uh, which alters your uh, perception of harmonies and sound and the way it works it uh, basically all our Western music, uh, after some time, starts to sound out of tune and your perception changes completely and you're starting to enjoy different sounds and uh, your voice also changes, uh, other people's voice changes, it's like a quite interesting experience and uh, that also got me thinking about the, the universality of our perception of harmony, like uh, there are these theories that uh, our ears are basically made to resonate with harmonic music. Like uh, there is something universal about what we as a Western culture appreciate harmonically and uh, scale-wise that uh, is somehow connected physically to our hearing. And during this experience I started to doubt that uh, that maybe if a, if a chemical in our brain could change this so drastically that maybe there is something else going on. And 
I don't really know actually like how it actually works, but uh, it got me thinking and uh, it I, I saw it as a potential starting point on how to approach harmonies and since then I'm always uh, like I rarely use straight multiplicants of certain frequency like uh, in uh, almost any work I do uh, I, I carefully put offsets to each frequency to not be completely in tune in the traditional sense and I feel that it uh, does a lot but in a like not maybe so perceivable way with the sound it, it, it somehow alters the whole experience in this like uh, not easily noticeable way but I can feel that it, it just works differently with people when there are these imperfections in, in, in sound there. So, and uh, the same goes with uh, changes of perception of time. So if you play back sounds of insects, for example, I, I uh, recorded sounds with at very high sample rates, meaning that I was able to capture also their ultrasonic vocalization and when I slowed it down to our audible range, I realized uh, there is a lot of complexity beyond what we can hear. And uh, that again reminded me of the fact that our hearing is limited to perceive the complexity of that vocalization. So there is like a whole layer of communication we are missing there. That's another inspiring thing to, to try out, to just... Uh, bringing back information from different parts of the sonic spectrum back to our maybe more sensitive spectrum of hearing and uh, experimenting with that and uh, when i was generating my own sounds that i reflected back what i learned from these field recordings and from uh, studying the the natural world so uh, i create sounds in a way that are inspired by organic sounds and they actually try to sound organic in a sense as well like uh, imitating what I heard there but it's my kind of like my own take on that topic